0: We're going to turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 for our scripture reading this morning. 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. After After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day... Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead." And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked upon me, he he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. He said to me, "Who are you?" I answered him, "I am an Amalekite." He said to me, "Stand beside me and kill me." For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him, because I am sure, I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord <clears throat> and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said, said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this time children ages 3 through kindergarten are dismissed to little landing
1: good morning faith family at the landing we today begin by god's grace a series picking up first and second samuel we are in second samuel today and we will look at the whole chapter as he helps us by the holy spirit you will find when we go through 2 Samuel, much like 1 Samuel, that there's a warm, rich welcome into the Lord and into His home here. You'll, you'll find in 2 Samuel a rock-solid foundation of the Word of God. You'll see the Word of God as it's carried out and believed and loved and trusted and comes to pass. You'll see also the holiness of God-like walls that give definition to this home that we enter into as a faith family. These walls have dimensions and they have height and they have windows and they have space that defines God's holiness. That will be on display. You'll see it even today. And then the roof of God's supremacy and His sovereignty covers it over and protects it all. His sovereignty is on display here in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and throughout the whole rest of the book of 2 Samuel. And then along the walls and in the furnishings of this warm home the Lord welcomes us into Via this book of Holy Scripture, you'll see the love of God. You'll see the beauty, the color, the variation, the meaning, the sweetness, the poignancy, the tenderness of God's love. All of that is on display in 2 Samuel. Lord, give us eyes to see. Let's ask Him to do that right now. Father, open my mouth to speak clearly and boldly as you have called me to, and open up our ears. From the little ones to the seniors that we might hear, not me, but you. I would be inaudible, I would be invisible, and I would ask you to bless now to your people a sermon far better than the one I've written. I pray that the Spirit of the living God would dwell heavy and sweet on us like a fog. A Shekinah fog that none of us can escape from that seems to penetrate us and have its holy, high, loving, true, terrifying way with our souls. We are yours. Shape and fashion us after the image of your Son. Now, by this word, I pray, O Lord God, through Christ. Amen. Before I walk through the narrative, the passage of the events that happened to David and the Amalekite, you need to remember three important facts about what's happened in 1 Samuel in order to understand the sweetness and the richness and the glory of this passage in front of us. You need to understand, first of all, that God regretted that he made Saul king. Remember that, 1 Samuel 15? He not only regretted it, he intended to regret it. He wasn't surprised by Saul. He knew exactly what Saul would do, and he made him king, and then said, I'm gonna regret it, and I'm gonna tell Samuel so that Samuel tells you all. Why would God want you to see his regret? So that you can see exactly what grieves his heart. Fact number one, God regretted that he made Saul king, And he ended up tearing the king out of Saul's hands. Do you remember why? He told Saul, you need to kill all the Amalekites. They're the people that God permitted to come against the Israelites when they escaped from slavery in Egypt generations before. But Saul failed to kill all the Amalekites. In fact, he let the king live, and he took all their wealth, and he thought, I'm going to get rich off of this. And so Samuel tore His own robe, or Saul tore Samuel's robe, and Samuel says, Just like you tore my robe, God's going to tear the king from you, Saul. God regretted that he made Saul king. Absolutely crucial. You have to see that and have that in mind while we read this passage. Second, David is here at the end of 1 Samuel and now the beginning of 2 Samuel, stepping in as God's anointed king, doing exactly what God told Saul to do. This is magnificent. He's not getting the credit. He's not appointed king yet. He's God's secret king. How many times have you done the right thing and somebody else got the credit? How many times have you stood for Christ and somebody missed it or dismissed it or opposed you for it? Here's David. He's doing the right thing. He's fighting against the Amalekites, these unclean, unholy people God said to wipe out because they were utterly against him and committed the most vile acts of evil against his people recorded in Scripture. And David has just come back after fighting the Amalekites at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31. And you might remember what he finds. He had a village, a sweet village. Surely you can imagine a garden in the middle and some livestock and homes that were beautiful. And David's Family, two wives and children, and all his mighty men and their wives and children, all gathering, and they were eating together, and they were singing together, and they were a band of brothers. They had sweet fellowship together. They loved each other with a deep, sweet affection for each other. And then God calls David out to go to battle against the Amalekites to do what the right kings do, obeying the word of God. And while David's fighting the Amalekites, a band comes and raids and burns and pillages Ziklag, where he was living kidnaps his wife and children, for only the Lord knows what. And David comes back right at the beginning of 2 Samuel 1 to find the smoking rubble of the work of the Amalekites that a sovereign God has permitted. That's the second fact. Fact number three. David and Jonathan, you remember, were fast friends, brothers in the covenant love of the Lord, You might remember that because God makes loving covenants with His people, they make loving covenants with each other. You see it obviously and beautifully in Christian marriages. You see even an echo of it in non-Christian marriages. You see it also, maybe most sweetly, in the brotherhood between David and Jonathan or or maybe the covenant brotherhood that, that you and another woman in Christ that you, sister, have or you, brother, have another brother in Christ with whom you have a sweet covenantal relationship that can only be described as God's heaven come to earth. It can only be described as the love of God being shared between you. May it be so for you who are married, but may it also be so for you who are uh, single, but you have a a brother in Christ as a man or a sister in Christ as a woman. If you're a young person, ache and yearn and desire to find believers in your life. Seek them out. Your, Your whole life can't be bent on just ministering to hurting and needy. You have to be able to be refreshed and renewed by being connected in a covenant love way with a brother a sister in Christ. That's what David and Jonathan had all through 1 Samuel. And oh, you can feel the pain that David's about to hear as a so-called sojourner Amalekite comes with bad news. Now you might wonder, why do two other places in the Bible say with very clear clarity that when Saul was off fighting the Philistines. You know that was a war of his own doing, right? He's going to go talk to a witch that he outlawed and then secretly masks himself and uses her services. She raises up a spirit of Samuel in an unholy way in defiance against God and His Word. And Saul wants permission to go fight against the Philistines. I know, God, you said I'm supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. I know that's what you told me to do, but I think I can be a better king if you let me run the kingdom. I'm going to fight the Philistines. And ultimately, Saul dies at the hands of the Philistines. Suicide by war. He did say, according to 1 Samuel in the Chronicles, he did say to his armor-bearer, They have come upon me, their arrows have hit me, I'm about to die, please take my sword and kill me. But the armor bearer of Saul was too fearful and righteous and holy before God to lay his hand of unholiness upon the Lord's anointed. And he said, no, I am not going to kill you, my king. So Saul fell on his own sword and committed suicide. That's what happened. So horrified was Saul's armor bearer that he did the same. So also was Jonathan and two other sons of Saul killed in the battle against the Philistines. Oh, the degradation to families and generations when anyone in the family runs hard after wickedness and disobeys the word of God. Oh, the joy that tumbles upon you and your children and your children's children if you obey the word of God today. Look with me to the passage. Know this, it's my interpretation, and I'll argue for it. Come talk to me if you don't think I'm right. It's my conviction that this Amalekite coming with news and a very odd story to David is a liar. Verse 1, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, good for you, David, you're doing the right thing, David remained two days in Ziklag, smoke going up, wives and children taken, no food, no livestock. Can you imagine David just kicking piles of ashes, just grieved to the core of his being? Two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Oh my goodness, he must have torn his own clothes. He's got dirt he picked up and put on his own head. He's a sham. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Oh, King David, I'm an Amalekite, but I'm going to bow before David. Oh, yes, sure you are. Verses 3 and 4, David hears the worst possible news. Where do you come from, David asked, and he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. I thought he came from Saul's camp. I came from the camp of Israel, and David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. David wants to know how the war Between Saul and Jonathan and the Israel army went against the Philistines, two wars fighting at the same time. He answered, the people fled from the battle, true, and many people have fallen, yes, and are dead. Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. David receives the worst possible news. This throws Israel into the... the, catastrophe of not even knowing are they even a nation because now their king is dead and not only is their king dead but the one in line to follow him is also dead and we find from the from the previous first samuel that two other sons from Saul were dead as well but then David questions further verses 5 through 10 then David said to the young man who told him how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead and the young man who told him said by chance It's only the Amalekites who think there's such a thing as chance. Believers know God rules the world. By chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Now, let's just stop there and say, okay, David's off fighting the Amalekites in another direction. Saul's fighting the Philistines. What in the world is an Amalekite doing in Mount Gilboa? No reason for him to be there. He's in the wrong war. You should just say, excuse me, whoops, I don't see any of you on my side here. I'm in the wrong war. I should be over here fighting David. He's on Mount Gilboa for no good reason. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. True. Behold, the chariots and horsemen were also upon him. And when he looked around him, behind him, he saw me and called to me. No, 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 it was actually to his armor bearer, buddy. And I answered, here I am. I'm an Amalekite and I'm just at your service, Saul. Do you see the bunk? And he said to me, Who are you? I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen, physician that I am. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Surely this curries your favor, doesn't it, King David, to be? We know Saul killed himself by two biblical witnesses. This man is lying. This Amalekite had no business fighting in Saul's war with the Philistines. He, in fact, if he's an Amalekite at all, was either a spy or a deserter or a coward. He's running away and now he recognizes that God's hand is on King David and he's coming looking for protection and safety, knowing that David is is actually fiercely, under God's right command, wiping out the Amalekites, and now David and his men are going to gather shortly and go retrieve his wives and rebuild in another community called Hebron. These are a, this is a dark-hearted man, dirt on his head, torn clothes, bowing before him, saying, I killed Saul. I took the spear. He asked me to do it. There's no way he was going to live. I killed him. Look at verses 11 and 12, David's grief. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. The Amalekite tore his clothes as a sham. David tears his clothes in genuine grief for sin. So did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord, all caps, the covenant Lord, for the house of Israel, because they, Saul and Jonathan, had fallen by the sword. This was a, this was a tragedy of massive proportions. I, imagine Gettysburg, Pearl Harbor, and 9-11 all wrapped together into one imagine, do we even exist as a nation anymore? We don't even have a king and there's no protocol for adding another king immediately into place. In fact, at this time, Israel is without a king and without God's provision. Is God even with us? Is God even trustworthy? Is he good? Have you ever had an episode happen in your life that makes you question whether God is good, whether he's real, whether he's with you? whether he's able to care for your family given the tragedy that you're going through. I was reading recently how the United States Department of Health put out a study that says at epidemic proportions like never before in the history of the United States is loneliness and isolation. Loneliness and isolation. Causing there to be increased attempts at taking one's own life and every form of escape. The Christian gospel comes into the United States of America in 2023 and says, we hold out to you the gift of eternal life. And so many respond by saying, why would I want to live this life forever? David is struck with the same crisis of faith. And he believes in God. And he has a mighty fear of the Lord. So great is David's fear of the Lord that David, though he had time and time and opportunity and opportunity to kill his enemy Saul, who pursued him with hatred, David feared the Lord and would not lay his hand against the Lord's anointed, not once. Even when God humbles and makes vulnerable Saul during those pursuits in 1 Samuel, even when David knew that Saul was placed into his power and hand, David withheld, for he feared the Lord and would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. David is filled with the fear of the Lord. You know what the fear of the Lord is? The fear of the Lord is this overwhelming sense that our God is so great, our God is so high. Our God is so merciful and gracious that He might even forgive and care for one, a sinner like me, and He might even use me for the good and honor of His name. And therefore, he, de- he needs nothing. He is owed everything. He lacks nothing. He is worthy of all praise. And therefore, He is the God of all gods, almighty and highest of all. And He is to be feared. David feared the Lord which repeatedly in our memory of him reminds us that he would never raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And that gave him the judgment and the wisdom to judge this man, severely yet justly. Look at verses 13 through 16. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And, and he answered, I'm the sojour- son of a sojourner and in Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you... We're not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Didn't you have the fear of the Lord? David's asking him. Out of this man's own mouth, I don't think he did it, but out of this man's own mouth, he's boasting that he killed God's anointed. David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. It wasn't an assassination or a murder. It was a judicial Execution following the command of God. All sinners before the holy God will hear the command to be eternally executed if we have not bowed before the Lord and received salvation through His Son's name, Jesus. Go execute Him. And the young man, David instructed, struck him down so that he died. And David said, after the man died, your blood be on your head. Your blood, your guilt remains on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David didn't kill him because this man killed Saul, the Amalekite. He killed him because he was, in fact, an Amalekite who boasted and claimed and testified that he had killed the Lord's anointed. David is just. He so feared the Lord that his judgments are just. We know from Isaiah in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, that the suffering servant will rise, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord, and he will so fear the Lord that his judgments will be just. It's exactly what David is doing here. He's acting not only in righteousness, fearing the Lord and having sound and severe judgment over those who reject and oppose and sin against the Lord. He is also foreshadowing Jesus Christ, whom Isaiah prophesies of. The the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David, the son of David, who himself delights to fear the Lord and all his judgments are just and true. Praise his name. I draw out three simple truths apply to our hearts before we come to the table number one god is always just and all his promises are right god is always just and all his promises are right god is god's justice is on display here saul was told you should wipe out all the amalekites for that's the command of god against their sin and yet he didn't and here's david finishing the job here's david stunningly obedient and with all justice and with all propriety and honor pronouncing an execution of judgment against this Amalekite who stands before him, lying and boasting of his absolute rejection of the fear of the Lord. All God's promises are right and true. All God's promises come to pass. All of God's promises for you and for me and for the people of God around the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including Israel itself, all God's promises will come to pass. It's the timing that he's left mysterious to us. He regretted that he made Saul king, but he does not regret the way a man regrets. The glory of Israel does not regret nor change his mind, 1 Samuel 15, 29. Even when God intends to have regret, he has regret in order that his hatred and disdain of sin might be seen and put on display. He doesn't gain information. Saul was not plan A and David is plan B. No, no, David is plan A and Christ is plan A. Truth number two, look at David. Look at David. Here's how a rightful and a true king leads. This is how dads lead. This is how pastors and elders and deacons and deaconesses lead. This is how ministry leaders lead. This is how you lead in military and and in business and in media and in education. This is how you lead in the medical industry and how you lead in all ministries of every sort and kind. This is how you lead online. This is how you lead in your friendships. You, you cherish God so highly that, that out of your mouth comes truth that's born of the fear of the Lord and not the fear of men so that you can be trusted in, that, in all that you say and all that you do. And wherever sin has been exposed, you own up to it and say, that is for my God to forgive me and you to forgive me if I've wronged you. What a man of integrity David is here, how he fears the Lord, how he replaces with excellence what Saul failed at with error. All God's royalty, all believers in this room and in the hearing of my voice, kings and queens who've been adopted into his royal family, who fear God and delight to fear his name, we will obey and live out his word as God helps us in the fashion after David. It is a severe act of legal execution, but it was God's righteousness through David. We should grieve as David grieved. We should weep and be sorrowful as David wept. In fact, the second half of 2 Samuel chapter 1 is a poem. The poet, the prophet, the song leader, the psalmist of Israel writes beautifully a lament. He writes a song that rises up in praise. I'm going to read it in just a moment and you'll follow along as I read and we'll close our time here. David knows full well that it's not about Saul. It's not about him. It's not even about the Amalekites or the Philistines. It's ultimately about God and all God's purposes in all the world. Surely David taught to his son Solomon many years after this such that when Solomon was made king a generation later and was the writer of the book of Proverbs, Solomon, son of David, would write in Proverbs twenty four seventeen Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Why? Lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. You see the logic Solomon writes Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 with? He's saying this, you don't know yourself. If if you've got an enemy, don't make the assumption that you're not the bad guy. (laughs) You don't know yourself and the whole story as well as God does. Don't ever rejoice when your enemy falters, and oh, the temptation. You all have enemies. If you don't, just wait a minute. And when they falter, the temptation is for you and I to say, Ha! A little bit of justice. Some of us even, sadly, spend our lives praying for such things. But Proverbs 24, 17 says, Don't you dare rejoice when your enemy falls. Why? You don't know yourself as God knows you. And he might say, Oh ho, he got hardship and difficulty. You called him your enemy, but I'm going to make life easier for him because you rejoiced over his fall. Wait a minute, God. I'm slowing way down in my heart's affections here. Be merciful to my enemies as you're merciful to me. That's our prayer. It's out of that heart of wanting mercy from God, even for Saul, that David writes this poem. We'll go through it so swiftly. It's just a brief song. Look at how he begins in verse 19, your glory, O Israel, your glory, O Israel, that's the name God takes for himself, but David's addressing King Saul this way because God's glory was seen in the raising up of even sinners like Saul, Jonathan, and David. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen, tell it not in Gath, that's the Philistines, Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, that's another city in Philistia. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. We don't want our enemies rejoicing over Saul and Jonathan's death. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, where it happened, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor field of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. Jonathan was a mighty warrior when he was fighting. So was Saul. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. They fought for Israel. David recognizes that, seeks to honor them for it. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. Can you talk that way about your enemies? Beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. David didn't come between Saul and Jonathan, his father-in-law, and his brother-in-law. He didn't divide Jonathan from Saul, as even some interpreters claim from early chapters in 1 Samuel. That didn't happen. David said they were united even in death. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel? How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. He recognizes that God is almighty, and any might that Saul and Jonathan had, they got from God. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed. This word for distressed is torn and twisted inside. This is the deepest, this is the apex, the highest point of the chapter and of the poem. I am torn and twisted inside my brother. My brother, Jonathan. You see where we talk about each other as brothers and sisters here? We love each other the way Jonathan and David loved each other because God loved us. That's what's going on here. Very, very, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. What does David mean by that? He means the love that you and I shared as brothers, Jonathan, was a love that came from God. It's not a base or human or, God forbid, a perverse love. No, no. Jonathan had many children. David had many children. Guard your thinking as you carefully ponder the word with me at this very moment. Guard your mind to be a holy sanctuary for thought. God's love covenantally given to David and Jonathan was shared between them, and that love surpasses all the loves you could enjoy on the earth. O God, you are my God, sings David. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 63. The love David had for Jonathan began in their love for God and God's love for them, bound them together. That's why David says it was so pleasant. That's why he's distressed at Jonathan's death. That's why you should be connected in your marriages and in your friendships in the name of Jesus Christ with the love that comes from God and that binds your hearts together in magnificent, miraculous, supernatural grace of dear, sweet covenant love as brothers. The book of Romans in chapter 5 says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You can imagine David saying, I wish it was me that died in your place for you, Jonathan. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. What Jonathan and David are experiencing here at the apex of this chapter and the apex of David's grief is purchased by and fulfilled by Jesus Christ a thousand years later on the cross, David's greater son dying for sinners in God's love. The apex of Jonathan-David love, God's covenant love for Israel, is seen on the cross of Christ. And you know what that means? It means, brothers and sisters, that you and I will never experience this sweet love from God and share it with each other until we come before God recognizing that we are ourselves, Saul, even the Amalekite. We're the one who puts on airs. We're the one who puts dirt on our head and tears our own clothing to curry favor with those in power, sometimes the Lord himself. The cross of Christ and the love of God shown there and the love of God shed abroad in our hearts one for the other has no wonder or appeal to us unless we see ourselves all the way down to the point of worthy of execution by a holy God. Until we see ourselves as the Amalekites standing, as it were, torn and filthy before the Holy God for whom it is just for Him to declare an execution, we will not find ourselves filled with the joy and the wonder of being forgiven our sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. But the wonders are greater still. Saul was a feeble, unholy, broken example of an anointed king, one whose death occasioned a song of lament and praise from David. David, a better man still, yes indeed, but yet a flawed, broken, sinner, but anointed king. And our ache is that, that Saul, even through David, even through David's sons, points forward to a final king, a king of kings and a lord of lords, anointed by God to be the full and final king beyond which there will be no kings. A king who sits forever on the throne of David, one no king shall ever surpass. One righteous and perfect and holy, never broken, never sinning, but welcomes brokenness on our behalf. An entire family lineage of broken royalty. We are. Paul addresses the Corinthians this way. He addresses the Corinthians as beloved of the anointed Christ. And wonder of wonders, in Second Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says, But this Christ has poured out His Holy Spirit on you so that not only is Christ the anointed King of kings, but you are united and anointed in Him. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, he means all believers there, and who has also put his seal on us, all believers, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, all believers. You sit before the Lord's table and in the presence of the Lord and his spirit right now, and everyone in this room is experiencing it. He's promised to be here in the preaching of his word when we gather in his name, and he's here, and he's addressing you more loudly and clearly than I am. And he's saying, I have both loved you as a dirt-headed, torn-clothed Amalekite, and I have anointed you and united you with my Son, Jesus Christ, and you are flawless in Him. My love for you abounds, says God, by His Spirit to you, as it abounds for my Son, Jesus Christ, who Himself never once sinned. You come to the table in humility and you take of the bread and the cup because you know you're an Amalekite and you don't deserve it. And you come saying, he's washed me clean. I'm justified, I'm sanctified, I'm glorified in his presence. And he loves me with all the love with which he has for his son. Praise his name. Father, gather us around the table now, every believer in this room, to come boldly because of our confession of Christ into your presence, boldly, wonderfully, knowing that we have come out of degradation and deception and willingness to raise a hand against your anointed ones, defying you and having no fear of the Lord. And yet at the same time, your salvation transforms us. Your salvation gives us new identity. Your salvation cuts off and wipes away and casts as far away as the east is from the west our sinful and unholy identity. And you replace it with a new righteous and holy identity. Thank you for who we are in Christ. Thank you for Christ who is our King and anointed one. And that we are anointed by your Holy Spirit with him. Thank you for the promise that we come now to this table with that confidence and boldness. That believes and knows you'll receive us. And in no way harm us. We come unashamed and fearless to this table because we fear you. Glory as it is. Lord, we thank you for the welcome and the sweetness and the nourishment to our souls that these elements, the bread and the cup, will be. We ask all this now in the precious name of Jesus Christ and worship now at the table. Amen. Elders, would you come and join me as we distribute the elements together?